0: What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place, for free. Which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and uh, the lesser of the podcast platforms, Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Guys, what's new with me? Not a whole lot still. Nothing too exciting is going on. I went on a a couple more dates with the same person, but that's none of your business. Things are fine. That's still none of your business. Mm, Got together with a friend and swam in his outdoor pool, which doesn't sound that extravagant, except that it's a natural pool that he had created where it doesn't use any chlorine or chemicals. It's a hole in the ground with rocks everywhere. There's fish actually swimming in it, and he has to make sure that ducks don't get in there because ducks poop and that creates algae. It sounds like a real pain in the butt. It's probably less time consuming and cheaper just to buy a ton of chemicals and dump it in the water, but this is what he wants. It's got lights, it's got a little waterfall, uh, and actual weeds and flowers in it, lily pads. It's pretty disturbing. The coldest thing I have ever laid my body in, in my entire life, is that tiny little lake that he's created in his yard. Uh, Then he tried to build a fire, and that failed. Uh, He put twigs in there. He put logs, lit it, and the twigs burned, and nothing happened to the logs. Why? I don't know. He's a failure in everything he does. But besides that, nothing I recorded another episode of Book Boys with my good friend Ben and uh, I think we finally got our flow so there we go. Uh, but then we finished the first book but now we're going to read uh, and review a different book by Sean Penn and it sounds horrible. Horribly written. Apparently it's racist and sexist. Uh, so, I mean, what do you expect from the guy that pretended to want to interview El Chapo just so he could narc on him and get him arrested and put tons of people's lives at risk doing it. Uh, He wrote a book. I'm sure it's going to be amazing. Uh, The weather sucks. It's been hot and raining a ton and my kids got a game tonight, which I'm really hoping they call off because I don't want to sit in the rain. And the humidity and the heat. But that's about it. I have nothing else going on. Everything is exactly the same as all the other podcasts. So let's get to the story. Also, there may or may not be inappropriate content for kids or really sensitive adults. It's public domain books for the most part that I'm reading, so um, I think it's probably pretty safe and you probably shouldn't worry about it, but I don't read any of this stuff before I start doing the podcast, so I'm kind of learning about the book as you do, and uh, if anything really cool happens that's sexual in nature or involves a lot of swearing, I'm going to be pretty impressed, just like you, and maybe your kid in the back seat. And with that, enjoy this episode Of Leaves of Glen I am Glen Nuzzles So where did we leave off? Uh, In chapter 21 The Roaring Abysmal Beast Uh, After a failed revolution Nothing has really changed Uh, Terms like machine serfs Were thrown around That was kind of weird The oligarchy has made everyone complacent and uh, okay with police violence but they have their wonder cities and their beautiful homes no school if I remember reading that correctly schools were getting closed which seems weird Uh, Avis has to act like Ernest's sister when they travel so his fetish is just expanding, evolving that's pretty much it there's really nothing to this chapter it's just kind of a recap of how things have gotten worse and their revolution has done nothing So let's move on to Chapter 22, The Chicago Commune. As agents provocateurs, not alone were we able to travel a great deal, but our very work threw us in contact with the proletariat and with our comrades, the revolutionists. Thus, We were in both camps at the same time, ostensibly serving the Iron Heel and secretly working with all our might for the cause. There may have, or there were many of us in the various secret services of the oligarchy, and despite the shakings up and reorganizations, the secret services had undergone, they have uh, never been able to weed all of us out. Ernest had largely planned the First Revolt. And the date set had been somewhere early in the spring of 1918. Uh, In the fall of 1917, we were not ready. Much remained to be done, and when the revolt was precipitated, of course, it was doomed to failure. The plot of necessity was frightfully intricate, and anything premature was sure to destroy it. This the Iron Heel foresaw, and laid its schemes accordingly." We had planned to strike our first blow at the nervous system of the oligarchy. The latter had remembered the general strike and had guarded against the defection of the telegraphers by installing wireless stations in the control of the mercenaries. We, in turn, had countered this move. When the signal was given from every refuge all over the land and from the cities and towns and barracks, devoted comrades were to go forth and blow up the wireless stations. Thus... At the first shock, would the Iron Heel be brought to earth and lie practically dismembered? At the same moment, other comrades were to blow up bridges and tunnels and disrupt the whole network of railroads. Still further, other groups of comrades at the signal were to seize the officers of the mercenaries and the police as well as the oligarchs of unusual ability or who had held executive positions. Thus... Would the leaders of the enemy be removed from the field of the local battles that would inevitably be fought all over the land? Many things were to occur simultaneously when the signal went forth. The Canadian and Mexican patriots, who were far stronger than the Iron Heel dreamed, were to duplicate our tactics. Then there were comrades. These were the women, for the men would be busy elsewhere. Who were to post the proclamations from our secret presses. Those of us in higher employ of the Iron Heel were to proceed immediately to make confusion and anarchy in all our departments. Inside the mercenaries were thousands of our comrades. Their work was to blow up the magazines and to destroy the delicate mechanism of all the war machinery. In the cities of the mercenaries and of the labor caste, similar programs of disruption were to be carried out. In short, a sudden, colossal, stunning blow was to be struck before the paralyzed oligarchy could recover itself. Its end would have come. It would have meant terrible times and great loss of life, but no revolutionist hesitates at such things. Why, we even depended much in our plan on the unorganized people of the Abyss... They were to be loosed on the palaces and cities of the masters. Never mind the destruction of life and property. Let the abysmal brute roar and the police and mercenaries slay. The abysmal brute would roar anyway, and the police and mercenaries would slay anyway. It would merely mean that various dangers to us were harmlessly destroying one another. In the meantime, we would be doing our own work, largely unhampered. "'and gaining control of the machinery of society. "'Such was our plan, "'every detail of which had to be worked out in secret. "'And, as the day drew near, "'communicated to more and more comrades. "'This was the danger point, "'the stretching of the conspiracy, "'but that danger point was never reached. "'Through its spy system, "'the Iron Heel got wind of the revolt "'and prepared to teach us another of its bloody lessons.' Chicago was the devoted city selected for the instruction, and well were we instructed. Chicago was the ripest of all. Chicago, which of old time was the city of blood, which and which was to earn anew its name. There the revolutionary spirit was strong. Too many bitter strikes had been curbed there in the days of capitalism for the workers to forget and forgive. Even the labor castes of the city were alive with revolt. Too many heads had been broken in the early strikes. Despite their changed and favorable conditions, their hatred for the master class had not died. The spirit had infected the mercenaries, of which three regiments in particular were ready to come over to us en masse. Chicago had always been the storm center of the conflict between labor and capital, a city of street battles and violent death, with a class conscious capitalist organization and a class conscious workman organization, where in the old days the very school teachers were formed into labor unions and affiliated with the hot, oh, hod carriers and bricklayers in the American Federation of Labor. And Chicago became the storm center of the premature first revolt. He really romanticizes people dying. I don't know if that was just kind of the way people treated it back then, like how war was supposed to be kind of romanticized, or if Jacqueline is just a jerk. I can't tell. The trouble uh, was precipitated by the Iron Heel. It was cleverly done. The whole population, including the favored labor castes, was given a course of outrageous treatment. Promises and agreements were broken, and Most drastic punishments visited upon even petty offenders. The people of the Abyss were tormented out of their apathy. In fact, the Iron Heel was preparing to make the abysmal beast roar. And hand in hand with this, all precautionary measures in Chicago, the Iron Heel was inconceivably careless. Discipline was relaxed among the mercenaries that remained, while many... Regiments had been uh, withdrawn and sent to various parts of the country. It did not take long to carry out this program, only several weeks. We of the Revolution caught vague rumors of the state of affairs, but had nothing definite enough for an understanding. In fact, we thought it was a spontaneous spirit of revolt that would require careful curbing on our part, and never dreamed that it was deliberately manufactured. And it had been manufactured so secretly from the very innermost circle of the Iron Heel, that we had got no inkling. The counterplot was an able achievement and aptly carried out. I was in New York when I received the order to proceed immediately to Chicago. The man who gave me the order was one of the oligarchs. I could tell that by his speech, though I did not know his name nor see his face, his instructions were too clear for me to make a mistake. Plainly, I read between the lines that our plot had been discovered, that we had been countermined. The explosion was ready for the flash of powder, and countless agents of the Iron Heel, including me, either on the ground or being sent there, were to supply that flash. I flatter myself that I maintained my composure under the keen eye of the oligarch, but my heart was beating madly. I could almost have shrieked, and flown at his throat with my naked hands before his final cold-blooded instructions were given. Once out of his presence, I calculated the time. I had just the moments to spare if I were lucky to get in touch with some local leader before catching my train. Guarding against being trailed, I made a rush of it for the emergency hospital. Luck was with me as I gained access at once to Comrade Galvin, (laughs) the Surgeon-in-Chief, I started to gasp out my information, but he stopped me. I already know, he said quietly, through his "Mm, mm, Irish eyes were flashing. I knew what you had come for, and I got the word fifteen minutes ago. And I have already passed it along. Everything shall be done here to keep the comrades quiet. Chicago is to be sacrificed, (laughs) but it shall be Chicago alone. Have you tried to get word to Chicago? I asked. He shook his head. No telegraphic communication. Chicago is shut off. It's going to be hell there. He paused for a moment, and I saw his white hands clench. Then he burst out. By God, I wish I were going to be there. Again, they're sacrificing people, and they love violence in this book. There's yet a chance to stop it, I said. If nothing happens to the train and I can get there in time, or some of the other Secret Service comrades who have learned the truth can get there in time. You, on the inside, were caught napping this time, he said. I nodded my head humbly. It was very secret, I answered. Only the inner chiefs could have known up to today. We haven't yet penetrated that far, so we couldn't escape being kept in the dark. If only Ernest were here, maybe he is in Chicago now and all is well. Dr. Calvin shook his head. The last news I heard of him was that he had been sent to Boston or uh, New Haven. This Secret Service for the enemy must hamper him a lot, but it's better than lying in a refuge. I started to go, and Calvin wrung my hand. Keep a stout heart, were his parting words. What if the first revolt is lost? There will be a second and we will be wiser then. Goodbye, and good luck. I don't know whether I'll ever see you again. It's gonna be hell there, he already said once before, but I'd give ten years of my life for your chance to be in it. The 20th century left New York at six in the evening. It was supposed to arrive at Chicago at seven next morning, but it lost time that night. We were running behind another train. Among the travelers in my pullman was Comrade Hartman. Like myself in the secret service of the Iron Hill, he he it was who told me of the train that immediately preceded us. It was an exact duplicate of our train, though it contained no passengers. The idea was that the empty train should receive the disaster were an attempt made to blow up the 20th century. For that matter, there were very few people on the train, only a baker's dozen in our car. There must be some big men on board, Hartman concluded. I noticed a private car on the rear. Night had fallen when we made our first change of engine. And I walked down the platform for a breath of fresh air to see what I could see, though the windows of the private car, I, through the windows of the private car I caught a glimpse of three men whom I recognized. Hartman was right. One of the men was General Altendorf. And the other two were Mason and Vanderbold, The brains of the inner circle of the oligarchy's secret service. It was a quiet, moonlit night. But I tossed restlessly and could not sleep. At five in the morning, I dressed and abandoned my bed. I asked the maid in the dressing room how late the train was. And she told me two hours. And... Let's take a break and read about a new exciting book from Penguin Random House. If I can just open it. This book, Thin Air, a novel by Richard K. Morgan. Coming out July 2nd, people. That's tomorrow from here. It's only 544 pages. Super easy. Want to learn about it? Sure. About Thin Air. An atmospheric tale of corruption and abduction set on Mars. From the author of the award-winning science fiction novel Altered Carbon, a show on Netflix that I thought was really dumb. Now an exciting new series from Netflix. Oh, they just talked about it. Named one of the best books of the year by the Guardian... Hacken Vale is an ex-corporate enforcer equipped with military-grade body tech that made him a human-killing machine. His former employers have abandoned him on a turbulent Mars where Earth-based overlords battle for profits and power amid a homegrown independence movement. Hey, it's like the Iron Heel. But he's had enough of the Red Planet, and all he wants is a ticket back home which is just what he's offered by the Earth Oversight Organization. In exchange for being the bodyguard for an EO investigator, it is beyond easy gig for a heavy hitter like Vale, until it isn't. When Vale's charge starts looking into the mysterious disappearance of a lottery winner, (laughs) it stirs up a hornet's nest of intrigue and murder. And the deeper veil is drawn into the game, the more long-buried secrets claw their way to the Martian surface. Now, it's the expert assassin, poised against powerful enemies, hell-bent on taking him down, by any means necessary. Praise for thin air? I don't know, the Los Angeles Times says, quote, Kick ass! Mixed in with the thriller-esque action and cyberpunk backdrop is a hard-boiled noir story, complete with a twisting and turning plot that keeps readers on their toes. Wired says Richard K. Morgan wants to destroy your Mars fantasies. Well, that sucks. It's a grim vision, but one that Morgan finds far more plausible than the cheerful visions of plucky Mars colonists common in sci-fi. The Guardian Says a robotically enhanced Jack Reacher in a dazzling, dazzlingly, dazzlingly intricate game of political double and triple cross, spiced with tastily kinetic battle sequences. Paul DeFlippo Locus, okay, says if you ever imagine that the core aesthetics and themes of cyberpunk, low lives and high tech corporate fine or dominance future noir, post-human evolution and cyborg adaptions, hardscrabble urban environments were played out Thin Air will set you straight and kick your butt in the process, both kinematic and cinematic Thin Air is limbed by Morgan with balletic precision and smash mouth grace, that was annoying well there's that back to our story where do we leave off? Oh, that's right. She's talking to the servants on the train. She was a mulatto woman, and I noticed that her face was haggard, with great circles under the eyes, while the eyes themselves were wide with some haunting fear. What's the matter? I asked. Nothing, miss. I didn't sleep well, I guess, was her reply. I looked at her closely. And tried her with one of our signals. She responded, and I made sure of her. Something terrible is going to happen in Chicago, she said. There's that fake train in front of us. That and the troop trains have made us late. Troop trains? I queried. She nodded her head. The line is thick with them. We've been passing them all night, and they're all heading for Chicago and bringing them over the airline. That means business. "'I have a uh, lover in Chicago,' she added, apologetically. "'He's one of us, and he's in the mercenaries, and I'm afraid for him.'" "'Poor girl. Her lover was in one of the three disloyal regiments.'" "'Hartman and I had breakfast together in the dining car, and I forced myself to eat. The sky had clouded, and the train rushed on like a sullen thunderbolt through the gray pall of advancing day.'" Oh, geez, the very Negroes that waited on us <laughs> knew that something terrible was impending. Oppression sat heavily upon them. The lightness of their natures had ebbed out of them. They were slack and absent minded in their service, and they whispered gloomily to one another in the far end of the car next to the kitchen. Hartman was hopeless over the situation. What can we do? He demanded for the twentieth time with the help of a helpless shrug of his shoulders. He pointed out the window. See, all is ready. You can depend on it that they're holding them like this, 30 or 40 miles outside the city on every road. He had reference to a troop trains on the sidetrack. The soldiers were cooking their breakfasts over fires built on the ground beside the track, and they looked up curiously at us as we thundered past without slackening our terrific speed. All was quiet as we entered Chicago. It was evident nothing had happened yet. In the suburbs, the morning papers came on board the train. There was nothing in them, and yet there was much in them, <laughs> for those skilled in reading between the lines, that it was intended the ordinary reader should read into the text. The fine hand of the Iron Heel was apparent in every column. Glimmerings of weakness in the armor of the oligarchy were given. Of course, there was nothing definite. It was intended that the reader should feel his way to these glimmerings. It was cleverly done. As fiction, those morning papers on October 27th were masterpieces. The local news was missing. This in itself was a masterstroke. It shrouded Chicago in mystery. And it suggested to the average Chicago reader that the oligarchy did not dare give the local news. Hints that were untrue, of course, were given of insubordination all over the land crudely disguised with complacent references to punitive measures to be taken. There were reports of numerous wireless stations that had been blown up, with heavy rewards offered for the detection of the perpetrators. Of course, no wireless stations had been blown up. Many similar outrages that dovetailed with the plot of the revolutionists were given. The impression to be made on the minds of the Chicago comrades was that The general revolt was beginning, albeit with a confusing miscarriage in many details. It was impossible for one uninformed to escape the vague yet certain feeling that all the land was ripe for the revolt that had already begun to break out. It was reported that the defection of the mercenaries in California had uh, become so serious that half a dozen regiments had been disbanded and broken, and that their members were with... Families had been driven from their own city and into the labor ghettos. And the California mercenaries were, in reality, the most most faithful of all their salt, exclamation point. But how was Chicago shut off from the rest of the world to know? Then there was a ragged telegram describing an outbreak of the populace in New York City in which the labor castes were joining, concluding with the statement, intended to be accepted as a bluff, that the troops had the situation in hand. And the oligarchs had done with the morning papers. So had they done in a thousand other ways. These, we learned afterwards, as, for example, the secret messages the oligarchs sent with the express purpose of leaking to the ears of the revolutionists that had come over the wires and now and again during the first part of the night, I guess the Iron Heel won't need our services, Hartman remarked putting down the paper he had been reading. When the train pulled into the Central Depot, they wasted their time spending sending us here. Their plans have evidently prospered better than they expected. Hell will break loose any second now. He turned and looked down the train as we alighted. I thought so, he muttered. They dropped that private car when the papers came aboard. Hartman was hopelessly depressed. I tried to cheer him up, but he ignored my effort and suddenly began talking very hurriedly in a low voice as we passed through the station. At first, I could not understand. I have not been sure, he was saying, and I have told no one. I have been working on it for weeks, and I cannot make sure. Watch out for Knowlton. I suspect him. He knows the secrets of a score of our refuges. He... Carries the lives of hundreds of us in his hand, and I think he is a traitor. It's more a feeling on my part than anything else, but I thought I marked a change in him a short while back. There is a danger that he has sold us out, or is going to sell us out. Uh, I'm almost sure of it. I wouldn't whisper my suspicions to a soul, but somehow I don't think I'll leave Chicago alive. Keep your eye on Knowlton. Trap him. Find out. I don't know anything more. It's only an intuition. And so far, I have failed to find the slightest clue. Spelled C L E W. We were just stepping out upon the sidewalk. Remember, Hartman concluded earnestly keep your eyes on Knowlton. Well, he's clearly going to be dead. And Hartman was right. <laughs> Before a month went by, Knowlton paid for his treason with his life. He was formally executed by the comrades in Milwaukee. All was quiet on the streets. Too quiet. Chicago lay dead. There was no roar and rumble of traffic. There were not even cabs on the streets. The surface cars and the elevated were not running. Only occasionally on the sidewalks were there stray pedestrians, and these pedestrians did not loiter. They went their ways with great haste and deafness. With all... There was a curious indecision in their movements as though they expected the buildings to topple over on them or the sidewalks to sink under their feet or fly up in the air. A few gamins, whatever that is, however, were around. In there, I'm going to look up what gamins means. I almost forgot I'm using the Kindle, so I just click on the word. It says... A street urchin. <laughs> oh, a few street, a- or street urchins, however, were around. In their eyes, a suppressed eagerness in anticipation of wonderful and exciting things to happen. From somewhere far to the south, the dull sound of an explosion came to our ears. That was all, then quiet again. Though the gamins, little street urchins, little cute guys, had startled and listened like young deer at the sound, the doorways to all the buildings were closed, the shutters to the shops were up, But there were many police and watchmen in evidence, and now and again automobile patrols of the mercenaries slipped swiftly past. Hartman and I agreed that it was useless to report ourselves to the local chiefs of the Secret Service. Our failure to... So to report would be excused, we knew, in the light of subsequent events. So we headed for the great labor ghetto on the south side in the hope of getting in contact with some of the comrades. Too late! We knew it. But we could not stand still and do nothing in these, those ghastly, silent streets. Where was Ernest? I was wondering. What was happening in the cities of the labor castes and mercenaries in the fortresses? As if in answer, a great screaming roar went up, dim with distance, punctuated with detonation after detonation. It is the fortress, Hartman said. God pity those three regiments. At a crossing, we noticed, in the direction of the stockyards, a gigantic pillar of smoke. At the next crossing, several similar smoke pillars were rising skyward in the direction of the west side. Over the city of the mercenaries, we saw a great captive war balloon that burst even as we looked at it and fell in flaming wreckage toward the earth. There was no clue, CLEW, to that tragedy of the air. We could not determine whether the balloon had been manned by comrades or enemies. A vague sound came to our ears, like the bubbling of a gigantic cauldron a long way off. And Hartman said it was machine guns and automatic rifles. And still we walked in immediate quietude. Nothing was happening where we were. The police and the automobile patrols went by and once half a dozen fire engines returning evidently from some conflagration. A question was called to the firemen by an officer in an automobile, and we heard one shout in reply, No water! They've blown up the mains! We smashed the water supply, Hartman cried excitedly to me, as if, if we can do all this in a premature, isolated, abortive attempt. What can't we do in a concerted, ripened effort all over the land? The automobile containing the officer who had a... Asked the question, darted on. Suddenly, there was a deafening roar. The machine, with its human freight, lifted up in an upburst of smoke and sank down a mass of wreckage and death. Hartman was jubilant. Well done, well done, he was repeating over and over in a whisper. The proletariat gets its lesson today, but it gives one too. The police were running for the spot. also, another patrol machine had halted. As for myself, I was in a daze. The suddenness of it was stunning. How had it happened? I knew not how, and yet I had been looking directly at it. So dazed was I for the moment that I was scarcely aware of the fact that we were being held up by the police. I abruptly saw that a policeman was in the act of shooting Hartman. But Hartman was cool and was giving the proper passwords. I saw the leveled revolver hesitate, then sink down and heard the disgusted grunt of the policeman. He was very angry, and was cursing the whole Secret Service. It was always in the way he was averring while Hartman was talking back to him, and with fitting Secret Service pride, explaining to him the clumsiness of the police. The next moment I knew how it had happened, uh, there was quite a group about the wreck, and two men were just lifting up the wounded officer to carry him to the other machine. A panic seized all of them, and they scattered in every direction, running in blind terror. The wounded officer, roughly dropped, being left behind. The cursing policeman alongside of me also ran, and Hartman and I ran too. We knew not why, obsessed with the same blind terror, to get away from the particular spot. Nothing really happened then. But everything was explained. The flying men were sheepishly coming back, but all the while, their eyes were raised apprehensively to the many windowed, lofty buildings that towered like the sheer walls of a canyon on each side of the street. From one of those countless windows, the bomb had been thrown. But which window? There had been no second bomb, only a fear of one. Thereafter, we looked with speculative comprehension at the windows. Any of them contained possible death. Each building was a possible abuscade. Ambuscade, ambuscade. This was warfare in that modern jungle, a great city. Every street was a canyon, every building a mountain. We had not changed much from primitive man, despite the war automobiles that were sliding by. Turning a corner, we came upon a woman. She was lying on the pavement in a pool of blood. Hartman bent over and examined her. As for myself, I turned deathly sick. I was to see many dead that day, but the total carnage was not to affect me as it did the first forlorn body lying there at my feet, abandoned on the pavement, shot in the breast, was Hartman's report, clasped in the hollow of her arm, was a child, though as a child (laughs) might be clasped, was a bundle of printed matter. Even in death she seemed loath to part with, that which had caused her death. For when Hartman had succeeded in withdrawing the bundle, we found that it consisted of large printed sheets. The proclamations of the revolutionists. A comrade, I said. But Hartman only cursed the Iron Heel, and we passed on. Often we were halted by the police and patrols, but our passwords enabled us to proceed. No more bombs fell from the windows. The last pedestrians seemed to have vanished from the streets, and our immediate quietude grew more profound. Though the gigantic cauldron continued to bubble in the distance, dull roars of explosions came to us from all directions, and the smoke pillars were towering more ominously in the heavens. Well, there was that. Another chapter in the bag. Chapter 22, The Chicago Commune. What did we learn? Uh, Avis is a mole now. For a person that had to, was so dangerous that she had to change her identity, Uh, it's not hard to go sliding right on in and working for the oligarchy. But instead of worrying about herself and her dangerous job, she still thinks about Ernest and where the heck is he and is he alive or dead. She learns that their plans for the big battle in Chicago have been found out. So she runs off to a doctor with Irish eyes. Uh, Who doesn't seem to really care. He says he knew 15 minutes before and you suck. Uh, And he seems kind of excited for the carnage. Saying it's going to be hell. And it's real, real bad. Uh, And sort of seems to like that a little bit. And wishes he was there. So that's weird. Uh, Hartman foreshadows his own death. By talking about looking out for Knowlton. And I don't know if I'm going to make it. But when I die, keep an eye out on Knowlton. I think Knowlton is a uh, a traitor. He also doesn't seem to, uh, or the author doesn't seem to really care about letting us learn more about Knowlton. Why is he worth pointing out? Why do they have to take the time to really spell out that Knowlton's a traitor? Doesn't matter, because within the same paragraph, it is talked about how he was later discovered and killed. So that's the end of that story, and now we know that uh, Hartman's going to be dead any time now. Lots of trains, and fairly racist name-calling. Uh, Gaiman's, 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 Street urchins, are basically like canaries in coal mines. If you want to know if there's going to be an explosion, look for the homeless kids. Keep an eye on them. Then lots of blow-ups, lots of angry police, and uh, a woman dies holding socialist propaganda and is declared a hero. So there you go. That's Chapter 22 in a nutshell. Was it worth it? I don't know. Every chapter in this book feels like you're warming up for something big, but we're almost done with the book. So... uh, We'll have to hear the next chapter. Uh, We'll have only two more after that. It'll be fantastic. Thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again.